Welcome to Sliding Doors, the podcast that delves into the decisions and moments that shape our lives. I am Jenny Becker, and throughout my life, career and relationships, I've always been fascinated with the notion that everything happens for a reason, alongside my love for the 90s movie classic, Sliding Doors. Have you ever really thought about those moments that shaped your life? Those decisions that could have gone either way in the opportunities presented to you? What if you had taken that job or told that person in high school how much you liked them? Each episode, I will talk to some amazing people from all walks of life and chat about their sliding doors moments. We will reflect on how a decisional moment changed the course of their lives and how things might have looked if they had never happened. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. My guest today is Dane Baptiste. Dane is a stand-up comedian, writer and presenter and is hailed as one of the most exciting acts in British comedy. Born in South East London, he made history in 2014 as the first black British act to be nominated for a comedy award at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for his debut stand-up show Citizen Dane and since then has had numerous sell-out nationwide and world tours. Dane regularly makes TV and radio appearances and his credits include Live at the Apollo, Mock of the Week and Steph's Pack Lunch to name a few. And he created and wrote and starred in his own sitcom Sunny D, which was the first black British sitcom to be commissioned by the BBC in 20 years. He also recently launched his YouTube series The A to Z of Blackness. Dane's talents don't end there, as he also hosts his own podcast, Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, and this summer sees him return to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for the first time in five years with his new show, Bap Squire. As someone who was at the forefront of the British comedy scene, I'm so excited to find out about the moments that have built his path so far. So welcome to Sliding Doors, Dane. Thank you for having me, Jenny. I can't wait to chat to you today all about your moments. Um, and we're recording this before you do your Edinburgh Fringe show. So are you excited to be going back there? I am excited. I, have, I haven't been for a long time and I feel like it must have changed uh, a lot since I've been away. Uh, I've had a lot of uh, existential changes in my life and uh, yeah, a lot of different things have happened to me in the meantime. 
So it'd be good to kind of share that with a crowd or with an audience that maybe have not, uh, maybe have necessarily remember my presence in Edinburgh and uh, to new audiences as well. So looking forward to that respect. Well, also, I guess, like, as you say, you've changed so much. It'll be so nice for you to see the difference probably in yourself as well from how you were back then to how you are now. Yeah, that is true. I mean, uh, it'd be interesting because I'm doing a lot of different room uh, for the first time. uh, And it'll be, yeah, definitely interesting to see how I've evolved as an artist and how I'm able to deliver a show. Um, But yeah, in terms of, yeah, I I think I've definitely changed and uh, looking forward to seeing how much audiences have changed as well. Amazing. Um, And I want to take it back to when you were younger. I'm always really interested with comedians to kind of understand what was your dream when you were younger? Kind of, were you always funny from a young age? Was a comedian always what you set your sights on or were there different dreams when you were little? I think I had a lot of different dreams when I was younger because unfortunately comedy wasn't something that I found was particularly visible to me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I did enjoy it. Like I, I remember being a kid and watching like the British Empire with my dad. Hayden oh, the Pace, British Canada Empire. Ball. Yeah, you love watching sitcoms yeah. like that. Lenny Henry and Chef, I thought was amazing. Um, the first time I'd seen uh, comedy, particularly sketch comedy, that looked with people that looked like myself was The Real McCoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a massive inspiration for me. But um, so I think I always enjoyed comedy as like an art form. It was something that definitely something I would consume whenever I got the opportunity to. And I also feel like I had like a class clown complex because I kind of felt that I was very restricted at school and. Uh, comedy allowed me to uh, have a lot more autonomy in terms of how I uh, displayed myself and interacted with people. Mm-hmm. So in my school, I remember in school assembly, we'd like sometimes do little skits and stuff. And I got a very healthy reputation for producing really funny skits that like a lot of the other kids would look forward to. So I definitely saw the power in that as well. Yeah. But I think the most significant thing that happened to me in terms of comedy at school was on my last day of school. Because um, I was saying goodbye to a couple of my friends. And my teacher, my sister's form tutor, basically decided to scold me on the last day of school in front of everybody. And basically she was like, you're not funny. You think you're funny, but no one's laughing with you. They're laughing at you. I don't think you're going to go very far in life. And like, this is an adult speaking to an 11 year old. And I feel like a lot of people have those experiences and they're kind of traumatic. But for me, I found it really empowering. So I'm like, I don't even, I'm not even in this class. And you're that intimidated by me. And the fact that she said no one's laughing with you, because I wasn't making any jokes or like misbehaving or anything yeah. like that. And the fact that she was like, you think you're funny. I was like, nah, you know, I'm funny. <laughs> and that's why you're saying that. So she actually had the opposite effect of allowing me to realize how much power there is in comedy yeah. and how you're able to convey those ideas. So I think it was definitely something I always used as a effective icebreaker, as a way of uh, being able to disseminate information amongst my peers. Also gets you out of very hostile situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh yeah, I just think for a long time, it was still something I didn't think I'd be able to do because I had no background in uh, drama or theatrics or like uh, performing. Mm-hmm. I didn't, my parents didn't either. I, I was under the impression that people did, did like comedy and performed or went to like stage school and it wasn't really yeah. something that was part of my uh, aspirations. And it was probably only until some of the things we'll be discussing in the podcast that uh, my mind began to change about making it a career. Yeah, well, I hope that teacher's looking looking at you now and being like, and you can be like, I told you so. Maybe she is, <laughs> maybe she isn't. But I imagine she's not very happy about it. And given the amount of comedians I know that uh, straddle between working in education yeah. as well as doing comedy, uh, she probably was a frustrated comedian that wasn't doing great herself. Exactly. And so this success has been the best revenge. 
It's so, you're so right in what you say. It really annoys me when like adults are like that because you don't realize what an impact, I mean, it made a positive impact on you, but for a lot of people, it can kind of be, be quite negative. And if that was something that you massively crushing. Yeah. And you obviously kind of like enjoyed being funny and whatever. And she, yeah, well, as we say, we prove these people wrong, but, um, yeah. Well, teachers are also some of the worst audience members you get as well at comedy clubs because they're really? not used to being in a room where they're the only person where everyone's not paying attention to them. Yeah. So I've found a lot of the time that normally when teachers are coming out for like a group night out or like they are the most talkative because they're used to attention being on them and being able to command an attention room, uh, the attention of a room full of people. And some of them aren't able to give over that power, I've noticed. So, yeah, it makes her comments a lot less surprising. I think luckily for me, I was a bit more grounded yeah. and almost... I saw her her um, comments as a validation of my rebellion, mm-hmm. but I definitely think for a lot of people it can be tough and very crushing for an authoritarian figure to you know shit in your dreams like that. I guess because I was like, well, I'm not trying to be a comedian, so I don't really got those kind of dreams. It didn't really bother me. Yeah, but yeah, looking back, I'm like, I definitely think it's important that uh, people that are placed in positions of helping young children, especially, realize their creative or basically potential in any arena are very careful with how they use that and what uh, larger macro social effects that can have. For sure. And you, you said there that obviously you didn't think that comedy, you know, was obviously available to you or that could have been a career for you. What, what did you grow up wanting to be when you were at school? What, what were you kind of driving towards being, or did you not know? Well, I think there was a number of different things. I think part of me always wanted to do something creative, Mm -hmm. um, but I also had seen so many people with creative aspirations struggle so much, particularly in the British industry. So I guess I was trying to find a happy medium, which would allow me to have some level of creativity, but as well as be able to get a steady paycheck. So I uh, had wanted to be involved in like marketing and devising advertising campaigns, uh, copywriting. Uh, I had a brief period where I wanted to probably be involved in animation as well. uh, Because like when I was a kid, like seeing stuff like the Simpsons and seeing adult animation, was really inspiring. So I definitely thought about doing that. I think uh, I wanted to be a lawyer at some point because that also involves presenting arguments and being quite creative, yeah. which, uh, is, which comedy is a almost a form of presenting an argument, much like a comedian, uh, a lawyer would as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. A number of things. I, I also felt like uh, I had, I had maybe considered being a, in a man- managerial uh, capacity within mm-hmm. entertainment. So I guess it was like, seeing so many people that look like me who struggled financially at the end of their careers in maybe the, uh, in sports or athletics um, or entertainment, it was like, well, maybe if they had somebody who had more of a corporate uh, creativity, uh, I could be that kind of person that would uh, be able to help others realize their potential as well. Yeah. So you had lots of dreams. I really like that because I think as well, we, I think as kids and like young people, we need to have open minds about what we want to do. Cause I never think we know what we want to do. You need to try things. And as you said, we'll talk about them in your moments about the things that you have tried. Um, so you've been around the British comedy scene for quite a while now. How, I mean, how do you think the scene has changed over the years for you, for black British comedy, for British comedians? What, what kind of, what kind of pivotal things have you seen change in the kind of past couple of years? Well, after my success at the Fringe Festival, I saw massive changes to the uh, recruitment policies of agencies in the UK. Mm-hmm. Like I always make it a point that people understand that when I started doing comedy, there was no agent in this entire country who was interested in representing me. Really? Uh, no one really uh, had an interest in my voice. 
somebody was even heard to comment that we already have a black British act on our books and why do we need to? Oh my God. There are a lot of people who failed to see any nuance in the black British experience. The mentality was that there was the uh, black British experience is very monolithic mm-hmm. and didn't have a lot of nuance. Uh, so when I was nominated in Edinburgh and I went on to do Live at Dipolo and have a podcast, it meant that a lot of agents then had to redress their uh, preconceptions mm-hmm. about the black British experience and had to acknowledge that not only is it uh, different and successful, but it's also commercially viable. Yeah. And so there was a massive drive after 2014 where all these agents who would had no interest in signing me all began to sign their own uh, Black British acts and try to emulate the same success. Uh, not just that, um, also because I had made my bones as a comedian doing the circuit mm-hmm. and there was definitely a, a, a rift between acts that performed at the Edinburgh Festival uh, who were seen as a bit more theatrical and more fringe-based and then acts that performed on the circuit and would do like work in men's clubs and yeah. perform at the weekends. And so both black British comics as well as um, circuit uh, comics, particularly those of a working class background, began to see Edinburgh as being there a space where they could realise their success. And I remember my first show was at 5.30 at the Bunker 2 at the Pleasance Courtyard. And I'd see comic after comic then using the same room at the same time, Mm -hmm. trying to emulate the same level of success. So I am definitely uh, humbled by the fact that uh, my success definitely changed the uh, aesthetic of the comedy landscape. Yeah, I, I formed my own management company in order for me to do this because no one was interested. And now everybody has kind of tried to do the same model. So being part of that is, is, is really amazing. It's so good. And it's so amazing to, I mean, it's ridiculous that it had, it took that long. And as you say, there was just like the, the knockbacks and the people that didn't even want to kind of talk to you shouldn't have even happened in the first place, but it's amazing that there was a catalyst and you, you are seeing positive change in the introduction. I spoke a bit about how, you know, you have, you're not just an, you know, you, you've written your own sitcoms, you've done so much than just kind of perform comedy. What would you say is your proudest moment so far out of everything that you've done? That's a really good question. It's a tough one. I, I don't. I I feel like all of those experiences have all contributed to the best moment. But I think the best moment for me has just been to uh, uh, observe the level of inspiration that my work has been for other people. Uh, I think the most uh, humbling and the the points of pride that I enjoy the most are when you know other comics talk about when they saw me when they were at university or before they started comedy as well. And how inspiring that is. I think it's also speaking to a lot of my peers. Like, you know, I've gotten received amazing uh, plaudits from people that I grew up watching, whether it's like I did another show, Bamus, which I wrote and created and starred in, that uh, Dawn French was uh, very gracious to kind of uh, to retweet and kind of celebrate. Lenny Henry has been massively complimentary as well. Uh, Sometimes I get to like speak to like people like Jimmy Carr and Jonathan Ross. And these are people I came up like watching and admiring. So I think the proudest moment overall has been just being acknowledged by my peers as a uh, credible uh, act. I love that. And also I love when you say that kind of that trickle down effect when, you know, you've been inspired by a lot of people, but actually sometimes it's realizing that you're also inspiring people because we never take the time to really think that we're always so critical of ourselves that we don't realize that, you know, we are also people that are inspiring, I guess, the next generation. 
Absolutely. Someone is someone is always looking at you. And, I, and I've also received like really good feedback from, like I said, people like Jimmy Carr and stuff like that who have been like, you know, even when you get to higher echelons of this industry, there'll still be some insecurities and you'll still want to be a perfectionist and aspire for more, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, not, uh, always reassuring to hear. But yeah, I think definitely for me, it's been able to be part of the change that I wanted to see within uh, the industry and allowing that to kind of happen. And I definitely had a vision not just for myself, but just for the creative landscape in general, that I definitely think we are positively gravitating towards. So being a part of that wave has probably been my proudest moment. Yeah. And talking about vision, do you, so looking at yourself now, where you are in your career, do you have dreams and visions of where you want your career and your life to take you, or do you just kind of go with the flow? I think it's a mixture of both. I think that some of it, there are certain aspects and a big part of my uh, journey has been learning to, you know, the whole serendipity prayer of being able to change the things that I can, accept the things I can't change and having the wisdom to know the difference in order to maintain my mental health. Um, I think what a lot of people have gleaned from my body of work is that what I'm doing in terms of the narrative behind my body of work is a bit larger than comedy or it's something that's going to transcend comedy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing about art anyway, is that art has such an impactful effect on culture and the disposition of people that you can naturally have a direct effect on society and have a direct effect on culture. And so I'd say that my larger aspirations now are to just kind of begin to imprint. Um, so in, when I studied business, I learned about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the top of that pyramid being self-actualization. Yes. Yeah, and how to imprint on people. So I guess that's my next aspiration is mm-hmm. understanding myself and understanding my own personal impact on society and on industry on a larger scale. And that's that's a brilliant vision and aspiration to have. And I'm looking forward to seeing you getting there. Okay, so before we go on to talking about your moments, you've kind of alluded to it there, but what do you believe in when it comes to the sliding doors theory? So the theory that everything happens for a reason, fate, timing, coincidence, you kind of mentioned serendipity. What are your thoughts? I think that there is an element of truth to all of these things. I do believe that there is certain element of fate, but I think that as beings of free will, we can definitely influence our fate uh, uh, because I also feel like cause and effect is a large part of the uh, existential framework that we have to learn and thrive within mm-hmm. uh, as uh, sentient beings. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely believe in the sliding doors thing and also multiverse theory. So I feel like there's different versions of ourselves yes. and those and those different universes or realities play out based on the uh, decisions that we do make. And then I believe that at some point in our afterlife, we get to watch them all back in like a box set version. So you can see all of your sliding door moments back really? yeah, in, in terms of multiverse theory. Love that. Yeah, so I think, but I think, you know, that in terms of reality, this is all, uh, these are all functions of the human mind. And a large part of it comes from uh, aspects of our subconscious that we don't necessarily entertain. And I think that uh, we should do it a lot more because then we, mm-hmm. we would allow ourselves to see a lot more of our uh, sliding door movements and see some of our more alternate realities. But I think it's definitely, I definitely think that, uh, you know, our fate can definitely be determined by very small actions and, you know, the whole butterfly effect theory. 
Oh, you've mentioned some great, great nuggets there. I think like the idea of, of the multiverse and, you know, I can just see us now looking at all the, cause there's so many little things and so many moments in our lives that could have gone either way. And I read a book once where there was like a library of every moment that we could have done and changed things and you got to go and experience them. And I love the fact that you believe that, you know, like we can one day get to kind of see all those moments and how they played out. And do you think about, you know, the what ifs of things that have happened in your life? I do. I try not to dwell on them too much because I think sometimes it can distract you from uh, the current experience that you're having. But I also like to feel like if I maintain a certain disposition and a certain level of existential honesty, then the positive outcomes in my life will be repeated on a multiversal level. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like I'm working towards the life that I've always dreamed of. And I think that the best thing is that you are able to send out those positive energies to the alternate versions of yourself. And hopefully those can also arrive at a point of personal happiness because I'd like, I guess I imagine the various things that have existed in different sliding door moments have been able to ultimately become happy because of the, those moments have led to other things. And it's the uh, correct decision-making that will arrive at the ideal outcome. That's what I want for my other Danes anyway. Wow. I really, really love that theory. That's such a great way to look at everything. So your first sliding doors moment is breaking up with my girlfriend in 2006. So this one sounds quite juicy. And from the sounds of it, you did the breaking up. So I'm excited to delve into this one. So take us back to 2006 and explain how and why you broke up and why this was such a sliding doors moment for you. Um, So my first relationship, I'd say my first long-term relationship happened quite late because just after I finished uni. Uh, So I was actually in my early 20s when I got into this relationship. And I think that seeing a lot of my friends getting into long-term relationships and getting married after uni maybe pressured me into thinking that I should be seeking meaning in the first long-term relationship I have after uni. Um, Mm -hmm. The problem with that, though, is that I felt like I probably needed a lot more life experience before I'd be able to commit to the relationship fully. And I also think, most importantly, there was an element of my life that was unsatisfied existentially, which was my uh, aspirations as an artist and a creative that I wasn't necessarily um, being honest with myself about. And so I, again, as I'd always done, is used comedy as an outlet. And so me and my friends, when we would still do stuff like where we'd go on holiday, like lads holidays or onto like music weekenders or like festivals and stuff, comedy was always my icebreaker. And that yeah. would, uh, you know, and I'd meet a few friends and stuff like that as well. And long story short, like one of the f- friends I'd met was a girl who'd gone to the same college as my uh, ex girlfriend and my ex-girlfriend had a had my password to my emails and apparently would go regularly check my email inbox uh because of well whatever reason people do that for we've all done it yeah i guess everyone has done it but um she uh has got an email an email from another girl which she saw as cheating and i felt very guilty about uh because i guess on reflection i wasn't being honest about the person i was in that what i wanted to do and there probably wasn't that much more to it but also, actually, to be honest, I was dishonest to her because I had reached a point where I wasn't very happy in my relationship mm-hmm. and maybe didn't have the tools to be forthright about that. So, yeah, that period of irresponsibility just led to a very sad and toxic time in that relationship where she was just letting me bleed out, mm-hmm. metaphorically speaking. And I just had to basically commit harakiri and, and kill the relationship because I was just being drained emotionally and spiritually. Uh, all on the basis of this infraction 
And um, I think I'd been putting so much into that relationship. I had left very little for myself. Yeah. Uh, so I had to put an end to it. And how did the ending the relationship kind of really change things for you? Like, you know, what what happened subsequently once you'd kind of ended the relationship? I think the main thing that happened was that, like I said, as the, the the relationship towards this end became much more toxic, I remember my ex-girlfriend throwing it in my face that she'd met Richard Blackwood, obviously a very prolific comedian, and obviously understanding that I had aspirations about being doing comedy or being quite funny. Mm-hmm. had been like, well, you know, Richard Blackwood asked for my number, so you're not the only funny guy I knew. Uh, and I was like, well, that's rather cruel. So I think we broke up very soon after that. But the main thing that happened for me was that once I wasn't having to put my energy into building up, supporting this person financially and supporting this person emotionally, and it basically ended because it needed to. But the most, the biggest realization I had after that was, you know, what if you took all of this time and energy and love and put it into something you actually wanted to do? Yes. And so a friend of mine, a friend of mine had spoken to a comedian called Kojo, who you may have seen on Britain's Got Talent a couple of years ago. Yes. Yeah, so Kojo ran a comedy night himself uh, in London. And he told my friend that I've got two weeks to put together a five-minute set. And so on October the 26th, 2006, I got on stage for the first time to deliver a comedy set. And I think from there, my life uh, changed. Amazing. Yes, because we've had Baba Tunde on the podcast as well. And I think he worked a lot with Kojo and I think Kojo kind of found him as well, which is amazing. But this is a really good moment because it brings up quite a few things. I think, first of all, what you said at the beginning in terms of, I think we all get to an age where, um, you know, you're in a serious relationship and if everyone around you is doing something, there's this like mentality that you have to keep up and do stuff. And this is why I think a lot of Mm -hmm. people end up getting married and getting divorced young because they get swept up. It's happened with some of my friends um, and it's a really tough place to be. But I also think with kind of what you said, like, do you think you kind of, you know, you don't, do you look back and you don't regret the relationship? Cause it sounds like you actually learn a hell of a lot from it in terms of, you know, uh, you probably are very different now with how, you know, you're probably not going to buy girls. It is, you know, I think when you're younger, you think that love maybe is about buying things and treating that way, but do you, do you value relationships in different ways now? I do. I think I think the biggest lesson for me is that uh, there's a lot of very big lessons. I think the first lesson in love was to, I think heartbreak is an experience that all men have to experience mm-hmm. because the emotional strength you learn from that first scarring, you won't find anywhere else. Yeah. And I think it's an important uh, lesson, an emotional exercise for men to learn that there are some things that there are no amount of weights, no bulletproof vest, no weapon forged can protect you from it's uh it's a very big rite of passage into adulthood or even or personal responsibility because your parents can't protect you from it either yeah and so you know learning to be able to survive and to thrive within my own loneliness and also to understand the how crushing it is to have a broken heart Mm -hmm. was two of the most important lessons i ever learned in my life because it definitely increased my empathy in terms of learning not to do that to other people. Yeah. Not flippantly anyway. Yeah. And it uh, also taught me, and I think it's the one of the most important experiences I teach other people is about self-love. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when you're in a loving relationship, you worry about self-love because you equate it to selfishness. And it's not that at all. It's that self-love is about you understanding yourself, understanding what your needs are and um, setting a standard for yourself. Because I think, especially when people go through a breakup or they're in a toxic situation, 
they think if I do certain things, it's mean it's I'm showing I don't care. And that's not really the case. You yeah. have to definitely ask yourself if somebody who cared about me the way I cared about them knew how I was feeling, surely they would do something to mitigate it. So that's why I had to course. learn is that like no one who loves me would allow me to feel the way that I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. And uh, also loving myself means I know what how important it is for my own self-care and self-love. And anybody that uh, affects my ability to self-love is probably not a positive influence to have in my life, which I think was one of the most important lessons I have to learn. And it's definitely the advice I'd give to other people is that if you're in a situation where you love somebody and they're supposed to love you back or you're trying to work it out, take a look at yourself in the mirror. And if your face is not happy, then you're probably not in a situation you need to be in. Yes. And even some people might be like, but well, I love this person and I can't imagine my life without them. Well, life is a very long experience. In fact, it's the longest experience you'll ever have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and definitely. even if you do love that person and you're meant to be, with the, and if you're meant to be with that person, you will. then that might happen later down the line. But even then you need to be your whole self in order for you to thrive in that relationship anyway. Dane, I think you need to be a heartbreak coach. That, that was a, a very profound uh, speech. I, I, I agree with everything that you've said. I studied it for ages. I studied because I was like, I don't really fuck up things. So how did I manage to fuck this up? Yeah. And so I studied it so much. And, you know, it's understanding that heartbreak takes so many different guises. Like, so I'd look at some of my friends and be like, why couldn't I work this out? And like, weirdly, one of the, one of the ways I was able to rationalize and understand heartbreak was that it's like one of my friends, he got in a relationship with his partner. They've been married for like 20 years. And I was like, well, am I dumb? Can I not achieve that? But my same friend also experienced heartbreak in that a close relative here for his died where, before he started university. And that's a heartbreak that, you know, is equally or even more so painful because you have a it's bond of yeah. unconditional love with somebody and that person is no longer there. And there's no rhyme or reason as to why that is. Like, you know, in the same way that I was with my partner for three years, but some people, they're getting marriages for like 10 to 20 years. They build a whole life. They have plans of raising a family and sometimes and it doesn't work out. Up. And then they break yeah. up. And so, and it was feel exactly the same, irrespective of that time scale. And so in the same way that we understand that love really has no age and has no form or any sexual orientation, Heartbreak is exactly the same. And so again, for me, it helped me understand. I was like, if anybody can go through this, I could never be a human being that is opposed to same-sex love or trans love because anyone, I would never want any human being to be deprived of this or experience this feeling. Yeah. And every situation is unique. Every situation is different. And you said there, and what I'm interested in knowing is because you said that it sounded like it took you a long time in this relationship to actually end it. It sounded like you knew that you, you should have ended it earlier, but when we're younger, we don't necessarily have the confidence or the tools to do it. Do you think by going through this experience, it's taught you in the life that you live now, whether it's through work situations that you're not enjoying or relationships or anything else, has it taught you to kind of trust your gut and those feelings earlier and kind of end things when they feel like they're not right for you rather than letting it play out too long and it as you say getting toxic absolutely like and you know weirdly people have regarded me as being judgmental or being brash but it's because I've been able to create a disposition where I don't compromise on these things at all like I think that a lot of the issues that people have with mental health nowadays all stem from the fact that they feel a social or personal pressure to conform to these toxic situations because they think it's a done thing or they think that there's a certain level of compromise that is required. And, but mainly because people are scared of being alone. And I understand that because loneliness is, is true hell on earth. Yeah, I totally understand that. And, but at the same time, understanding that you being in the presence of people and still feeling lonely is a much worse feeling. 
so much worse, so much worse. I totally agree with that. And, and I think, you know, where I ask people the, the what if question, and I think, you know, I'm not going to say to you, what if you did stayed with your ex? Cause I don't think you would have, it sounds like, but what if you hadn't have broken up at that specific time? How do you think things would have been different for you? Because a lot of this is to do with the timing. You know, you could have broken up earlier, you could have broken up later. Why do you think the timing was so significant? And what do you think would have been different if you hadn't have done it? I don't know if I'd stayed in there. It, yeah, it definitely would have maybe dulled my instinct now where I won't accept that kind of compromise or and I won't even associate with people who are prepared to treat other people this way or are not able to take accountability in relationships. And it doesn't mean that all of my relationships since have worked out, but it means, I said, on the first, first time I smell something fishy, I'm out of there. Brilliant. And it's such a refreshing way to look at it. And also, you know, heartbreak's not a good thing, but I love the fact that you learned from it and it's something that you've learned from and you're using in your life now. Yeah. No, I think, I think it's a good thing, Jenny. It's important. And because as I said, it's not just important for me, it's understanding like empathy for other people. For sure. No, thank you so much for sharing that moment. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. On to your second moment. So, disciplinary at my job in 2010 leading me to quit. So I really love moments that involve quitting as I think it has a very negative association to it. However, quitting something that isn't right for you can be the most empowering thing that you can do. So explain why you got to disciplinary at your job and why quitting it was such a sliding doors moment for you. I first of all agree with you. I think quitting is one of the best things anybody that's involved in employment can do. Um, I think that it's negatively uh, viewed because of corporate manipulation yeah and it's definitely trying to keep people beholden to a machine uh I was put in a disciplinary for no real reason other than the fact that my manager didn't like me and I've understood mm -hmm. that what was the job I used to work as uh in media sales so I would mm -hmm. sell like uh banners and advertising on websites as well as on like YouTube and stuff like the pre-roll adverts that's what I'd yeah. sell that space to advertisers and I, I was in an agency exec. So I would deal with media planners and buyers and try to get them to buy a uh, space on the auto trader website. Okay. And, uh, it was probably, if I, and ironically it was a time where I had tried to dabble with comedy and didn't really know where I was going with it. So I was like, well, I'm just going to try and get a good career and actually have a corporate job and comedy could be something I do as a hobby. Uh -huh. And luckily for me, this, this company said, fuck you, Dane, you're never going to have <laughs> the career that you want working at a, a nine to five at a desk. 
because I was under the false impression that if you go to a company with new ideas and innovative ideas, that mm-hmm. that's something that will be celebrated. And I was able to learn working in the office is that if you are better at somebody than their job, there is no fucking way they're going to promote you or put you in a position whereby you can realize your uh, industrial potential because you'll yeah. make them look shit. And really, most offices function with the same level of maturity and functionality as a school playground. There mm-hmm. are cliques, there are friends, there are bullies, there's the bullied. And if you want to be a part of that, then that's absolutely fine. But unfortunately, I think it's a very sad thing that human beings get to a point where they begin to suppress or sacrifice their creativity or their dreams mm-hmm. and begin to slot in as a cog into corporate machines. And I think, I think the corporate world, especially, I think was very bad for that. I think, I think things are starting to try and get better. Cause I think, as you say, people are starting to realize that, you know, that isn't the way to be. Um, and you know, you should be able to freely talk about ideas that you have and, you know, but it's, it's true. If you can be the best, you the best ever at your job. If you have a manager that isn't very good, it can change everything for you. So what, what, what kind of was it that your manager did kind of put you on a disciplinary and then like, how did that lead to you quitting your job? My manager, when she started working at the company, the first thing she did when she hadn't even been there a week, maybe not even a day is that she had a wedding and on the team of 14, she maybe invited seven people of that team to her wedding. And I thought that was very strange because I was kind of like, well, how would you even be able to gauge the personalities of the people working here before you've even started working in the office to determine which people you want to come to your wedding and which people you don't want to come to your wedding? But it had seemed that very early on, my manager decided that she had a clique of people that she was prepared uh, to work alongside. And I guess those people were the ones that were most prepared to conform to the corporate culture there. And um, yeah, my, she had also been on The Apprentice and had not won. Um, but I guess she had seen herself as having some level of managerial aptitude, which I always thought was quite strange because if you're an entrepreneur, why do you need to be an apprentice? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody made a mistake on the website and they'd sold too, many, too much inventory, which kind of meant we, needed, we didn't have enough space to sell to hit our targets in the first place. And what my manager decided to do was that she, uh, I'd asked to be for a promotion to senior sales executive mm-hmm. and what I needed to do that. And it was almost like, or it was actually like I was punished for trying to better myself or to having ambitions. And I was given a disciplinary for missing my target. And my target was presented in quarters. So I hadn't actually missed the targets. I actually maybe missed the first two by a couple of thousand and then hit the quarterly target overall. Yeah. And so what they did instead was that they put up my target by 30%. And what that meant was that I would never be able to hit that target at all. Because I think it's weird if I'm struggling to hit a target, Making a target higher by a third doesn't really feel like it makes sense. Not really, no. But the reason they did that was because what they did was they made my personal target impossible to hit, but it was, but the team target was still hit. So everybody else would still get paid their commission, but I would miss out on my personal commission. So these are the kind of people I was working with. It was, it was so ridiculous. I remember I went away on annual leave with my partner. I came back and one of the clients that I'd had was stolen by another one of the, the people in the clique. Mm-hmm. And everybody had seen it. And by now, the corporate culture had become so depressive that people were just shaking their heads. And she was like, and it was like, we all know you stole the client. And she was like, well, you can fucking have it back if you want. And I was like, well, that's not very professional to talk to somebody like that. So I got pulled into an office where my manager began to uh, basically bellow at me about my uh, aggressiveness. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, ah, fuck this, I quit. 
So you basically quit before it kind of got, again, learning that actually when it gets to a certain point, you're like, I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm not going to wait. Yeah. I quit. And I remember feeling physically the weight coming off of my shoulders and my chest. Yeah. I was going to say like, did, did that feel? Cause I think that, you know, we get to a point I've had the exact same thing in a job where I think we're taught when we're younger, you don't quit things. Quitting's a bad thing. Yep. So you don't want to quit. You don't want to leave. But actually when you do quit something that is so bad for you, as you say, it's a relief. It's you become a, everything becomes better. You become a better person and you learn from those mistakes, not mistakes, but you learn from those bad experiences. And was this, was quitting this job, the catalyst to you going into comedy full time, or was it the catalyst of you kind of like finding this part of yourself that was like, screw this. I don't want to do a corporate job. I want to do something that I'm really passionate about. It was both. It was both. I think I was moving towards that anyway, but it was definitely about, I think the most important lesson was not just wanting to do comedy, but it was, like I said, learning to say no is one of the most powerful tools we have Mm -hmm. in society and especially corporately, because once you say I quit, they have no power over you. It's also informed my conduct within comedy as well, because you know, there are large corporate elements to this as well, but I'm just not somebody that compromises on my beliefs. And there are a lot of people in comedy who may believe certain things, but won't say them because they're trying to protect a fan base or they have to protect or their representation might tell them not to say things. Whereas I didn't get into comedy in order to appease people or to not speak out about things that may be unjust or amoral in order to protect a corporate interest. Because I know from direct experience that if you are beholden to anybody else, whether or not you toe the line, they can take that away from you anyway. So being able to say I quit and being able to leverage your own power over yourself, I think is one of the most important things that you can have. Yeah. And it's a great moment about kind of like self-empowerment, but also I think I I love this moment because again, you, you've taken something in a decision that you made at the time that you made it in the situation that you were in and you've learned a lot from it in your life and you can pinpoint it back to that one time where things really started to change for you. So onto your last moment. So going to university outside of London. So we have quite a few moments like this where people really look back at their choice of uni or school as like, as I say, a pinpoint moment in their life. So why was this such a sliding doors moment for you? I think it was, it's more, it's definitely related to doing comedy and stuff because obviously comedy, observational comedy uh, requires you to have keen observations and it'll be able to have a much more broader appeal and also for people to identify with what you talk about. Uh, obviously I grew up in London, which is a melting pot and obviously has the highest population within the country. So I was exposed to a number of different cultures. However, uh, I think going outside of London and I was going to uni in Bradford in West Yorkshire gave me an insight as to the disposition of most people that live outside of London or the M25 corridor. And that was massively important because first of all, the level of ignorance was a big inspiration for me in comedy and in terms of how I crafted my voice. Yeah. And, but at the same time, it also meant that I wouldn't have a uh, myopic view of the people that I was making observations about and understanding that there's a lot of nuance even to uh, British culture, which I think was definitely important to making me a much more rounded and much more uh, enlightened performer and uh, observer. Yeah, for sure. And was this like the first proper time that you'd lived, as you say, like outside of London, been around new people? And were there certain people who you met in that university period that have kind of like stuck in your life now and really kind of helped shape who you are? Definitely. I, um, 
So my uni was about an hour away from where my mum grew up in Huddersfield in West Yorkshire. So I had a lot of family there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I had an idea of what I thought it would be like, but I was greatly mistaken. Um, it's very different outside of the bubble of family that I was kind of living in. So it meant that, uh, I think the main thing was that understanding that I kind of was in uni around a time when like garage music was quite big in the early noughties. So it, mm-hmm. if you were to look at music, you would think that there would have been a massive renaissance of black British creativity that was taking place in the UK. Uh, however, in comedy and in TV in general, uh, black faces were being uh, erased from television. I think after Richard Blackwood's uh, show had ended, what I saw was that uh, black voices disappeared from TV mm-hmm. and instead they were being repre- replaced by mimics. So you saw like the rise of Sasha Baron Cohen yeah. and Lee Francis, both selector and phone jacker. So you'd see black faces, but they would not have any voices or there'd be people mimicking black voices, which is the reason why when I did Sunny D, there had not been a sitcom for 20 years. Cause that's the 20 years where I was at uni and all this shit was happening. So yeah, that's how long it, that's how long it had been. So um, I noticed that I, I think, I think there was an I preconception that people were very au fait with and well-versed in aspects of black British culture, but going to uni, I was like, no, they are not. They got no fucking idea who we are, the difference between us, the nuance between us. And I'll be honest with you, going up North was like being, I, it must've been, that's what it was like in the seventies or eighties. Mm-hmm. Like it was mass, it was quite segregated. There was a lot of ignorance. A large part of like when people talk about student life and nightlife, I remember much more the places I was turned away from than the places I got into mm. when I was at university. Like, you know, people look at metrop- metropolitan cities like Leeds in the north, super racist, super backwards. Mm-hmm. And uh, I probably received quite a culture shock myself. Yeah. Because I didn't think that in the 21st century, people would still be stopping black men from getting into nightclubs especially when the music that they're playing in there has been created by black people. Yeah. But that was a large part of what was going on. And for me, it was like, I think I made myself a promise. That I was like, I need to tell the world, at least the country about this. And it was also a promise that like a lot of my peers that were living under these conditions was like, I want to make sure that I communicate and validate your experience as well. Because I think a lot of my peers that grew up in London uh, were very culturally spoiled yeah. And a lot of, uh, of the diaspora living in metropolitan cities are like, you know, this is our culture and we get to do this and that. But if you're a black person and you live in Harrogate or you live in Huddersfield or you're a black person, you live in Norwich or you live in County Durham or like somewhere like Darlington, like any random part of the UK, your black experience is going to be very different to that of somebody that grew up in London. Like your access to other cultural indicators, whether it's even getting your hair cut, getting moisturizer, hair yeah. products music like your access to your own identity is very limited but i that does not take away from your experience so when i was beginning to think about my comedy voice and even today i always consider the black people that live in these places where they deal with a lot more cultural suppression than people do in london so that even though people don't think that i think i've always had in my career people like is he trying to speak to just black people and I definitely am, but I'm like, not every black person in the UK lives in London. Not everyone's had that same experience. There yeah. are people, if you're a black person, you live in Leicester or Derby. Before this, before social media, very hard for you to connect with the diaspora at large. And so totally true. it was something I definitely influenced as well. And, and also like a North-South divide. So even understanding that w- what's regarded as white British culture is not monolithic. Like people in the North are very different to people in the South. And that was a large part of the friends that I had, like, 
even when I muse on like, if I make any musings on Asian culture, understanding like the difference between someone who's Punjabi or someone who is, uh, you know, what we call Southeast Asian or someone from Sri Lanka or Southern India or Gujarati, like there are very considerable uh, nuanced differences between Indians and Pakistanis, for example. And these are very important things because they made that I was never closed-minded in terms of when I put together material. For sure. And I think it's a really great point because I think at the age that you are when you go to university, a lot of people have only ever really lived in the area that they live in and some people stay at home. And it really is such an impressionable age that can shape who you are. And I think it's amazing that you can kind of say that, you know, deciding to move out of London and move out of your everyday was something that has inspired and continues to inspire what you do now and opened your eyes and kind of probably like really wanted you to kickstart everything that you do. And how different do you think things would have been for you? So, you know, if you'd not have made that decision, if you'd have decided to stay near a home um, and not kind of, you know, branched out up north, how different do you think life would be for you now? I think um, I would have had a probably a, maybe a good time or an easier ride, uh, at least socially. But I think that it would have maybe uh, limited my uh, material in terms of having a full understanding of the social fabric of the country. Um, and maybe it would have been something I probably would have picked up on a lot more when I started doing comedy, but I think it's always given me a head start uh, ahead of a lot of my peers. So that now today, comics can very openly discuss race relations in the UK and critics have to be a lot more um, responsible in terms of how they refer to this stuff. Because before critics would be like, ah, they're just trying to be American. Whereas after I got nominated, people couldn't say that anymore. People couldn't talk about race relations as if it was some kind of American thing, because now they've seen somebody who can talk about it with the British nuance that people can understand. Yeah, for sure. Oh, Dane, thank you so much for sharing all your moments today. I think it's been amazing to see how these kind of moments that you've had in your life and your career have really kind of shaped who you are and what you do in the comedy world and your self-development. And I'm very, very glad that you're not in a corporate job and that you've managed to kind of let your creativity and entrepreneur um, style flourish and massive, massive Good luck. When this goes out, you probably will have done your Edinburgh show, but wishing you all the luck for your show in Edinburgh this summer. Thank you. And thank you for having me. And also thank you, Jenny, because you are also inspiring by doing this independently as well. And I hope that uh, you find it also fulfilling. And uh, I wish we get, and what I actually would like is for you to come on my podcast and discuss some sliding door moments of your own. I would absolutely love that. Thank you so much, Dane. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sliding Doors. If you've enjoyed our chat and found it inspiring, I would love it if you could rate, review, share and subscribe. Thank you so much. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.